This is Celebration Church, but it's more than just a building or a church. We have a calling to be a place where people can find a relationship with God instead of religion. A place where freedom is found and acceptance given, and every person can discover their purpose and experience the kind of fulfillment only God can give. Together we will raise, lead, and empower a generation to change the world. Here, Jesus is famous, and all the glory goes to God. This is celebration. This is our family. Welcome home. Good morning, Celebration Church. Let's all stand together as our campuses join with us over in Appleton and Stevens Point. Let's recite together the Apostles' Creed. This is our statement of faith. This is who we are and what we believe at Celebration Church. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting Amen. You may be seated. Good to have you with us. The weather outside is frightful. But the fire of the Holy Spirit is so delightful. So anyway, I don't know about you guys over in Appleton and Stevens Point. We have quite the uh, low attendance this morning due to the snow. Amazingly, miraculously, almost divinely, 70-some thousand people will make it to the stadium. Coming to church, that's a much more difficult situation. So, dear Lord, help us all. Anyway, glad that you are here. Um, we've been talking about our legacy offering that's coming up next Sunday. We've been talking about uh, investing in eternity and encouraging people. You know, there's, there's two things they say in life that you can absolutely count on. Taxes and death. And, uh, you know, you're wise to prepare for both. <laughs> Because you can escape neither. Uh, we want to not just live our lives for ourselves, but to be able to live our lives for eternity. Because this life that we're struggling in right now, it's a very short blink of the eye. We'll be spending much more time on the other side. And Jesus encouraged us to lay up treasures for heaven and stuff. So we're encouraging, you know, this is our annual special offering that we give above and beyond so we can just give and bless other people and invest uh, in eternity. People often say, well, how much should I give? Well, that is entirely up to you based on what you're able to give. I do always encourage people this time of the year with this offering. Uh, if it doesn't sting a little bit, you ain't doing it right. All right. It should sting a little. Now, no one's saying put your family at risk or do anything foolish, but uh, it should sting just a, just a little, you know, that's giving and sacrificing. Uh, these are the kind of things that pay off for eternity. And, uh, Jesus said, if you give, it will be given back to you. So I just want to encourage you to consider that. Now, I just mentioned the uh, glorious Green Bay Packers. Not quite so glorious right now. But uh, they are planning, they're playing the uh, Arizona Cardinals 
this afternoon. Now, I my, my dear friend, Tim Kimmel, who's been with us many times, I, I called, he lives in Arizona. I said, Tim, why don't you come to Green Bay? He'd never been to a Lambeau Field. Why don't you come up and preach and we'll go to this game and we'll celebrate now. Everyone had high expectations at that time. Not so much now, but it's still a game and we're excited. So anyway, he's here. It's snowing. I'm excited to get to be in the snow, him and his wife, Darcy. Anyway, Tim's going to come this morning and encourage us along these lines. Let's give it up for Tim Kimmel. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I am always glad to come back to Celebration Church. I feel like it's a, you know, the, all the places I speak, it feels most like the church I attend in Scottsdale. Um, I want to also welcome the, the congregations from Stevens Point and Appleton and those of you watching online. Uh, I want us to start out by just going through a time warp, okay? I'm not going to go back that far. October 20th, 1968, Mexico City. It was uh, uh, in, in the uh, mid-afternoon, they, they were sending the runners out for the marathon in the Olympics that year. The 1968 Olympics were held in, because of the altitude of Mexico City and the intense heat in the summertime, they didn't have them till October. And they sent these guys off, and they know kind of how long it's going to take these guys to to get in there, and they had a time, so they would come into the stadium full of people, and they'd award the, the medals. Well, they took off. And about, you know, a third of the way into this race, you know, they, when, when they're running, they're, they're in such tight configuration. And one of the men tripped. A guy from Tanzania named John Stephen Accor, he tripped and he fell, and he bashed his, uh, his knee up very badly and hit his head pretty badly. Of course, the other runners kept going. Well, he was badly injured, but he got up and he kept hobbling his way to the stadium. Well, the, the runners finished and they gave out the awards. And actually, they were getting ready to empty the stadium when, and it was dark. It was already dark when they got a signal. For they, they said, hey, everybody stay where you are. There's a, there's a marathoner still making his way to the stadium. And the people said, what are you talking about? We already gave out the medals. And sure enough, here, hours after this thing, here comes John Stephen Acquory, uh, just kind of stumbling his way into the stadium. Now, this is, remember, this 26.2 miles he was running. And when he came in, and the people just started giving him this thundering applause, and he made his way around that last lap, just hobbling around there, and he fell across the finish line, and the, the medical people took him right away and started to treat him. Now, the press wanted an interview. And they, they, there's only really one question you would want to ask, it's the one I would want to ask, and that is why? After falling, hurting yourself so badly, and, and, and having no chance of, 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 a, of, of a strong finish, why did you continue? And they asked him that question. He said this. He said, my country didn't send me 5,000 miles to start a race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish one. I like this guy. I like, I like his attitude. And, and what's interesting is that if you talk with distance runners about races and you bring up the 1968 Olympics, very few can remember who came in first place, but everybody knows who came in last place. And what's interesting about John Stephen Acquory is that, that, that he, he did something extraordinary, but he was also an extraordinary man if you, if you follow his life. 
You see, there's a huge difference between people who do great things and people who live great lives. You can do great things in a moment, but to live a great life takes on a, a whole new way of thinking. Um, some people would say this has a lot to do with his attitude, and I suppose it is. You, you know, the atti attitude plays a, 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 a part in a lot of things, in the categories that we divide people in. And by the way, ministers love to put people in categories. <laughs> and, 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 but I think society does, there's the haves, the have-nots, the problem makers, the problem solvers. There's the morning people, the night people. And God, in his divine wit, thinks it's funny often for a, a morning person to fall in love with a night person and they get married. <laughs> That's what happened with Darcy and me. I'm the night owl. I can't stand to go to bed at night. But I get married to her, and, uh, and she's about 8.45, 9 o'clock, I'm heading back to bed. <coughs> what? Yeah, uh, what? Why? Well, because morning comes early. Morning comes whenever you set the clock for it to come. What are you talking about? <laughs> Look, there's still junk on television. There's still people out in traffic. And, 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 and no, but no, no, morning comes early. So she'll go to bed. Then, sure enough, she's up at the, before dawn, and she's perky and singing and whatever. And I think, what is going on? We had issues when we first got married. <laughs> because... So, yeah, attitude plays a part, but I think there's even greater power in the perspective that frames our attitude. And I think there was a bigger perspective that John Stephen Corey took and people like him that is not just about attitude. And as Christians, our perspective is contingent upon whether or not we have a clear understanding of where we stand with God as a result of the sacrifice and the resurrection of his son on our behalf. Because you, you can put your faith in that, but still not grasp the totality of what all that means. And, and unfortunately, it's, it's, it's possible to become a follower of Jesus and still not be transformed by what that salvation represents in your life. And we can't presume that just because we place our faith in him, we have a clear understanding of how he views us and how that should impact the perspective uh, that we have towards the life he calls us to live and the people he calls us to impact. To set the stage for this, I, 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 I want us to go to a familiar passage in the Bible. I brought my NIV, the, uh, they'll be putting it up there, it might be in the ESV, but we can follow together. If you've gone to Sunday school as a little kid, this is one of those stories that uh, I'm sure you learned. It's about the, the famous story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. I wanna pick this up in uh, John chapter six, verse one. And uh, in fact, I can see it right here, and I'll just read it from here. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. And then Jesus went up uh, on a mountainside, sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast festival was, was near. And the next slide, there you go. And when Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now look at what it says. He asked them this only to test them for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Now let's hit the pause button here for a second to make sure we understand what Jesus is doing and not doing. He's not just trying to make Philip look like an idiot. That's not he's just, just trying to show, you know. He, he had a couple things he needed to do. First of all, these people need to be fed and we need to feed them. But he also knew that in a very short period of time, he was going to be leaving 
the stage. Remember it says the Jewish Passover feast was near. And he was getting ready to go to Jerusalem and give up his life and pay the price for our, for our sin. And he knew that he was gonna leave these disciples behind with some marching orders. I want you to go out and I want you to take this gospel to every corner of the world and I want you to make disciples. And the disciples, a, a follower of Jesus who's embraced him in such a way that they become a contagion that they want other people to hear. That just by simply seeing their life, other people are drawn to Christ. And so he says, I, I want you to do this. And, 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 and he knew that they were gonna be starting from scratch. How much money did they have in the bank when they took off to start the Christian movement? None. How much land did they own? None. How many seminaries were there? None. They were starting from nothing, and he wanted them to know, when I tell you to do something, and there's no way humanly possible you can figure out how to pull it off, trust me, you and me are a, a majority every time, you can do this. So that's another reason why he was doing it. So as, as we read on, Philip said, it would take more than a half year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. He said, come on, Lord, who are you kidding? Uh, we don't have that kind of... And then another of his disciples, Andrew, and by the way, every time you meet Andrew in the Bible, he's always introducing somebody to Jesus. And he introduced his brother Peter to him. So Simon Peter's brother, he spoke and said, there's a boy here that has five small barley loaves, two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? So here's this kid. And his mother had the forethought to send him off to see Jesus with a little Happy Meal. And, 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 he, and, and apparently, Andrew had figured out that this kid had it. Now, how would he know that? Maybe he, you know, they didn't have cellophane things, so he knew what, what was in the pack. So maybe he was getting hungry. And he's thinking, you know, I think that kid has some food. Maybe he'll share it with me, or I'm bigger than he is. I can take, I don't know what. But he not only saw what he had, but he also saw that it was small portions. How will they go among so many? Okay, let's bring it back up to the scriptures. Jesus said, look, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. Why did they throw that one in there? Well, because I think Jesus is saying, God's saying, hey, look, I want my people to be comfortable when I'm feeding them. It's, it's a good argument for up, when we, people vote to have good seats in the church. There you go. Uh, uh, There's plenty of grass in that place. They sat down, about 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated, look at this, as much as they wanted. And then he did the same with the fish. And then when, when they had all eaten, had enough to eat, he said, gather up the pieces, don't, let, don't have anything left over. So you notice his generosity, at the same time, his stewardship. Not be wasteful, but let's be generous. They gathered the pieces left over, were, uh, and, 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 and they filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves and, and the fish. Now, how many disciples were there again? 12, 12 baskets. In other words, saying, when I call you to do something, and, there, and, and it's just huge, I, I want you to uh, just trust me on it. And remember, I, I know you have a family too. I know you have to eat. So you're saying, I'll not only take care of them, I'll take care of you. Okay, now, Jesus had just taught a great lesson besides feeding all these people. Now it's time to see if they learned the lesson. And what happens next, I'm just going to kind of fill in the blanks for you. What happens next is that he says to the guys, look, I'm going to send a crowd on the way. Then I, I want you to get down the boat and you head across uh, the, the lake and I'll meet you at a certain place. Okay, so then he said, they'd get down the boat and, and they take off. And it should have just taken a maybe you know, 45 minutes to an hour to, to row uh, or sail their way across there. But he said, no, we got to make sure that they've got the lesson. So he drops a tsunami on them. 
He drops a typhoon down on them. And he's up there praying, and then he's got to go meet them now. Now, they've been out there in the middle of the lake fighting these waves for hours, and they're scared to death. And, and then, but he's got to go there. Well, it's, this, it's a long walk up around top. It's short. Just cut across. So he's jogging across the lake, walking on the water, and he goes by them, scares the junk out of them, and, and, and Peter tries to walk on the water. All, you know the story, right? And then they let him in the boat, and then says immediately they were at the other side, where he said he'd meet him. In other words, he said, now, they were given a quiz based on the lecture he gave them, and what grade did they get on their quiz? They got an F. Because they were so scared, they thought they were going to die out there. They couldn't have drowned even if the boat sunk, because he said, I'll meet you on the other side. See, they're, they're, God calls us to to not only embrace him and his salvation, he says, I want you by faith to trust me. And that trust should transform us. And with that in mind, I, um, I, want, I want to dovetail off this and I want to compare two types of thinkers. Now, I'm not, uh, I, I want to compare abundant thinkers with scarcity thinkers. Now, now, don't think when I say abundant thinkers, I'm talking about positive thinkers. Positive thinking. People, you know, they say, oh, there's power in positive thinking. No, positive thinking, that's not what I'm talking about. I'll give you an example. There was a, a, a movie scene that shows a great example of positive thinking that's going nowhere. Watch this one. I, I like you, Mary. I like you a lot. <laughs> I want to ask you a question, straight out, flat out, and I want you to give me the honest answer. What do you think the chances are of a guy like you and a girl like me ending up together? Well, Lloyd, that's difficult to say, and we really don't... Hit me with it. Just give it to me straight. I came a long way just to see you, Mary. Just least you can do is level with me. What are my chances? Not good. You mean not good like one out of a hundred? I'd say more like one out of a million. So you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> That's positive thinking. That's basically irrational hope based on nothing. The Arizona Cardinals are two and nine. You could suit out your cheerleaders today and have us buy two to three touchdowns before the first quarter is over. But there's still a chance. You just never know. Let, let's do this. Here, I, I want to take several categories, several, several angles on this thing. Jesus has shown us something amazing about himself and when we, what we have in him when we're in relationship with him. And let's compare, let's, let's, let's take these two types of thinkers and run them through a couple of different angles or filters. 
and see where you size up. And remember, I'm not talking about positive thinking, nor when I'm talking about a scarcity thinker, am I, am I in any way uh, uh, disparaging people who are hardwired by God to be to, to kind of think things through, to calculate well in advance, to risk factor. They're not necessarily naysayers, they're just quantifiers. We need them too. I, 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 I'm, I'm the ready, shoot, aim, let's go on an adventure. I married a girl that likes to calculate things in advance. We're a great team. <laughs> because left to my devices, I'd run us, our family off a cliff a long time ago. <laughs> So, so, but what we had, what, what our problem was, you know, I was a ready, shoot, aim. She was a ready, aim, 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 <laughs> aim thing. So we had to come up, how can we find some balance here? And I think when God gets a hold of us, he can bring that balance. Let's, okay, let's take one, one angle. How do these two types of thinkers tend to view life? And this is probably a very fundamental difference in them. Scarcity thinkers believe that life is a finite pie. Basically, that everything is limited. And, and, and they have a mindset that is focused more downward and inward. Now, by the way, that is contradictory to a transformed heart of God. That's contradictory to it. And yet, we can accept Christ and still not have that transformation. And we still start thinking like the, the, the people that were, uh, we were before we were redeemed. And so the, these type of thinkers think that resources, ideas, opportunities, even love are limited. And you can understand the havoc this can bring to a marriage or to parenting or to a church. But what about a, abundant thinkers? Abundant thinkers believe that there's plenty for everyone. That's one of the big differences because they're focused upwards and they're concerned outwards. And see, when God gets a hold of our heart, that focus should be there from there on out. And, and because our trust is in him, then when, one of the ways I think we know Christ really is in the rightful place in our life, we're concerned outwards. It's not about us. And so they, they're, they're outwards. And, and they believe that ideas, opportunities, even resources are unlimited because they're putting their confidence in a God that has no limits. If he can feed 5,000 people with that little tiny meal and all the other things he did, we can trust him. We had a man in our church named John W. Peterson. Some of you older folks may remember him. Maybe uh, Mark remembers. He, <laughs> Mark, and not, not because you're older, but because you're a musician. Do you remember? Uh, they used to do these uh, like Easter and Christmas cantatas John W. Peterson was one of the leading writers of those, <clears throat> and they were popular in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, that kind of thing. Well, he, was, he attended our church, and I had a question. I've always wanted to ask somebody I thought would know the answer, and, 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 and I threw it to him. I said, John, okay, let me, let me see if I get this right. There are eight notes in a musical scale, plus their sharps and flats, right? He said, that's right. Okay, now, we've been writing music for what? Original music, five, 8,000 years that we know of? Those classical guys use a lot of notes. Shouldn't we be getting towards the end of our options for those eight notes? He said, Tim, the melodic options of those eight notes plus their sharps and flats are, here's the key word, infinite. 
He said, we could write original music for another billion years, and we haven't even scratched the surface of those eight notes plus their sharps and flats. Who invented those notes? God did. Do you know that uh, God paints an original sunset every day? If you had high, sophisticated cameras and you took pictures, you could never find two alike. And out in Arizona, where we call the Valley of the Sun there in the Phoenix, and because of our air pollution, it refracts it so much. I mean, it's just gorgeous. <laughs> it's amazing. Now, how, he draws that with how many, how many primary colors are there? Do you remember? Anybody know? There are three. In other words, he just uses three, mixes three colors, and draws an original sunset. And by the way, he changes it every few seconds. He's never, he's never striped two zebras the same. He's never uh, fingerprinted two God, God is this infinite God. Why would we ever want to think with the limitations that are there? I love it, how, the way he puts it. Paul summarizes his thing in Ephesians 3 when he was just trying to come to summarize his, his amazing love for God. He says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or, or imagine. See the key word, imagine. According to his power that is at work, Where? within us. And then he goes on, to him be glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. I mean, he, he, he was overwhelmed with that. There was a poet that wrote it something like this, this is an old thing, and they made it into a hymn. Could we with ink the oceans fill and where the skies of parchment made, where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above, would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the skull contain the whole, those stretch from sky to sky. We have this incredible, overwhelming, loving God. And when he transforms us, it, it just takes over how we view life. How about how these two types of people view what they have? Scarcity thinkers have a hard time sharing. They tend to hoard. Remember, if life's a finite pie, I'm, I don't want to share much because that means there's less for me. So they hoard. They hoard recognition, credit. They hoard ideas. They hoard time. They hoard opportunities. They hoard approval. They hoard power and profit. They might even hoard love. Many times they have a hard time giving credit to others because once again, that credit to others means there's less credit left for me. And inside the family of God, this can really be tough on a church. And, and, and listen, I, let me just say some hard things here because we've got to be careful as Christians that, that we let God transform us because it's easy if we don't to become professional critics of God's servants. And being on the elder board of a pretty large church, we have to deal with this a lot. Uh, uh, it, it, it's people that, that sit in biblical hot tubs. And, and many times they're serial Bible study attenders. They're the Bible study after Bible study. But, but it's easy to become biblical bulimics where they take it all in and then they purge it and they get out and then they still live the way. No, God wants to transform us. He's given us so much. What about abundant thinkers? They hold all that they have in open hands. For one thing, they hold it in open hands because they know it's not theirs. <laughs> it's God's. 
all their, the things that they, they, they share. They share resources and recognition and time and ideas, opportunities, power and profit. They especially share love. Remember, the, it, uh, uh, you might remember the story of Jim Elliott. You know, he went and his uh, missionary friends went down to reach a, 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 some uh, Indians up the Amazon River that had never been reached for the gospel. And these, they were en- ended up killed. They were murdered. And they found his, his uh, diary. And he had said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. And, and so the wives of these guys came in, made connection with these people, and ultimately established a church with the people that had killed their husbands. That shows the amazing, overwhelming love of God. Now let's look at another angle. How, how, how do these two types of people view others? Scarcity thinkers have a difficult time being genuinely happy for the successes of other people, even and especially um, members of their own family, close friends, or associates. Because it's easy, if we don't let God transform us, to see other people's blessing as though something was taken from us. Let me give you an example. Let's say, here's this scarcity thinker, and he's, uh, he lives in a little community, and his neighbor pulls in in a brand new Land Rover. I mean, brand new. And it's loaded with every, every little option. And he said, wow, you must have got a raise at work. He said, no, no. My grandmother, she's getting older, and she has a lot of money. She decided to just start giving it away to us kids, and she asked me what kind of car I liked. I told this, and so she got it for me. She paid for the whole car. Get this, paid for the tags, too. Paid the taxes on everything. He said, why don't you come over and see it? No, I'm busy. I can't come over and see it. What are you talking about? I, I got to... I gotta rearrange my sock drawers and, and color coordinate. I, I'm, I'm busy. And he comes in and he tells the I can't believe it. He's got a brand new car. His grandmother bought it for him, paid the taxes on it. And he's, man, and, and then they, they pass each other out in traffic and, and, and the wave, neighbor waves to him and he says, ooh, I can't stand that car. By the way, there's a very thin line be, between not, not liking the car and not liking the driver. <laughs> He, he, he's, he's home, and, and he comes home, and his neighbor's looking at the side of his car. What happened? Oh, somebody nicked my car. Yes. Starting to look like my piece of junk. By the way, does this sound pathetic? Yes. But you've got to understand, any one of us can fall into this pattern. I have done this. When I don't let God de- determine the lens that I'm looking at everything through, and I don't have his heart, this can happen, and, 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 and it's easy to end up swallowing that poison pill of comparison. You never make it. And what's, what's sad is that scarcity thinkers miss out on shared blessing because they refuse to share joy. If they can't be blessed, they don't want other people to be blessed. It's easy to see people, others more as objects or challenges. You see, the difference, uh, scarcity thinkers see See, see, see them as, as all, uh, others as, as comp- competition. Whereas abundant thinkers see others as people that God created in God's image. And even if they might be messed up off the chart, but they still could, they need love, they need kindness, they need mercy, they need God. Or if they know God, that's even better. They get to share in that. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 says it this way. It says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God, that no bitter root grows up and cause trouble and defile many. Well, how about abundant thinkers? How do they view others? They love it when good things happen to the people they love. They love it when good things happen to anybody. They just love it. Let's go back to the Land Rover story. Okay, he's an abundant thinker. Neighbor comes over, he's driving up. What? Oh, you must have got it right. No, no, no. Grandma bought it for me, paid for everything. Oh, that's cool. You want to see it? Absolutely, but wait, I'm bringing my wife, and I want to post this on, you know, social. this is cool, I'm next to your car. You want to drive it? That's even better. And, and they pass each other in traffic, and neighborhood, and he says, oh, man, I love that car. Love that car. Then he comes home, he sees him. What's the matter? Oh, somebody nicked my car. Dang, wait a minute, wait a minute, I've got some compound. I, I, think we can, I think we can work that out. You see the difference? It's like the neighbor's grandmother gave the abundant thinker the car. Because <laughs> he's so overwhelmed with the joy of, of, of loving, God loving people through him that, that he just can't get over the goodness that happened to somebody else. You know what, it makes this a lot easier too, because I think when you're an abundant thinker, you tend to be much more grateful for what you have, and, 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 and so you tend to handle money better. You, you, you know, you're more, you're more contented, you're grateful, you understand the position God has assigned you on the playing field, and you don't have to worry about, you, you know, I'm not that person, uh, I, I, I'm happy here. Philippians chapter two, verses three through five says this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then he goes on, and he has a very famous passage where he says, have this mind in you which was in Christ Jesus, who, although God, did not consider all the benefits of God something to be held onto, but he emptied himself, not of his deity, not of his divine nature, but of all the privileges, and he took on human flesh and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So Paul is saying in this passage, he says, he's not asking us to do anything that Jesus hasn't already done for us. And, and see, but, but my, my plea for you is that we can give our heart to him in salvation, but never let him transform that heart into his. Doesn't mean we've lost our salvation and we're not going to heaven. It just means we miss the bigger part of what he sacrificed his life for, to transform us and change the way we, uh, we deal with others in life. And you know what? This, this automatically makes us, you know, hold what we have in open hands, be more generous. And I want us to say, you know, I, I go to a, a church and I, and I, I, at the end of the year, Darcy and I, just like Mark was talking, we come in and we say, look, it's, it's a time of gift giving. We want to give gifts to the, our families and, and close friends and so forth. But we also want to remember our church. And I'm not, the reason I say this, I, I always want to remember our church first because our church is the one that ministers most to us, to our family, to our friends, and the economy of scale, what it can do with that money is more than I could do with it if I was out there individually trying to touch people's lives. And so I hope when you come back next, next week, you've prayed hard and God has given you a heart that is filled with abundance and, and, and you can pour that out. Let, let's look at one last dimension here. How do these two types of people look at adversity? Scarcity thinkers 
take adversity personally, and they tend to punish the people up close to them when they have to go through it. How, what does that look like? Many times they whine, they complain, they nag. Someone said nagging is like being nibbled to death by a duck. He said, will you just grow teeth and finish me off? I am sick of this. You're driving me nuts. It's e- get this. It's even possible to make an idol of our misery and worship it. And the way we cope is worshiping our misery. The problem is there's people up close to us that are forced to have to deal with that uh, religious aberration we're having in our heart and everybody goes down in the process. I I watched my brother go through, I mean, just a year ago. You all know what poor Mark was going through. But but I, I, I was so taken by how he, it was painful, and he understood, uh, he, he wanted it differently, but, but he, he was putting his trust in God in the middle of it all. I, I was amazed at that, and I was grateful for that. You have an abundant thinking pastor. And, And that's why we've got to ask God to cleanse our heart from any type of a scarcity mindset, especially when it comes to adversity. Because if we take on this scarcity mindset, it's oftentimes that, that not only we make idols of our misery, we don't dream and we don't give the people up close to us permission to dream. Think about the impact that has on our children. Or the damage that can do to our marriage or to God's kingdom work. It, it can turn us into cynical people. Someone is described, they said a cynic is someone who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. Because many times to do something great for God, you think, man, this is gonna be pricey and expensive and where are we gonna get? God says, trust me. Our God is so wealthy. When he sits down to watch NFL on, in the afternoon, millions fall out of his pockets. There's always plenty with his people. And so we can trust him on that. Oftentimes, when it comes to adversity, the the scarcity mindset would rather feel good than do good. What about abundant thinkers? Look, they feel the pain and the frustration of adversity, but they never use it as an excuse for not doing everything they can to move beyond it. They feel it, but but, but it's just, hey, it's my turn. I have, it's my turn to go through some awful times, but I, my God hasn't abandoned me, and I'm gonna trust him through this, and I wanna do the right things regardless of what my emotions or my circumstances are telling me. I played football in high school for uh, Big Al Laramore, Coach Laramore, and he had this thing, you know, every once in a while you get your bell rung big time. We were, you know, 5A school playing some pretty severe stuff. And, and I remember one time I got to, I just got the wind knocked out of me and I'm laying down. And he yelled out and everybody could hear. It's like the, everybody went silent all of a sudden so you could hear Coach Lerman. Kimmel, are you hurt or are you injured? I hated that question. Because <laughs> I wasn't injured, I was hurt. See, if I was injured, they got to get me off the field. My body won't work. I was just hurt. And I yelled, Coach, I'm hurt. 
Get up! Everybody's hurt. It's a contact sport. You can't play it if you're not hurt. And listen, the Christian life is a contact sport. It's not going to be always comfortable, but God can work in it. And that's easier to do when you play for the coach and not the crowd. James chapter 1. James, by the way, was Jesus' half-brother. He didn't hang out with him for three years. He hang, hung out with him all the time, from day one. He said, consider pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and let per- perseverance finish its work, so that you may be, look, mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Look, some of you have gone through some tough times. You've been bankrupt. You got fired. You've been through a divorce. Maybe you had to get married. You had an abortion. You, 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 you've, uh, you had some bad relationships, left some scar tissue on you. There might be a lot of regrets and broken dreams. That's what church is all about. We're a collection of those kind of people. This isn't a country club for the religious elite. This is a, this is a hospital for the broken and battered. And if you want to know where the line forms, it forms right behind me. We all have, we all walk with limps, and yet God loves us, and he wants to do extraordinary things in us, for us, with us, and through us. The, th- the thing about all these things I just listed up, don't let them define you. They're, they're, they're dark chapters in the story, but don't let them define you. We have a choice. We can diminish the finished work of Christ on the cross and choose instead to take our cues from the worst side of our personality or our fears or our disappointments or our regrets, or we can let Jesus change it all. We can dump. So Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will know, uh, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect work. You, we, well, listen, we can all shift. We can all shift our minds. Abundant thinking is simply the logical extension of letting Christ work on a cross completely redefine how we see ourselves, others, life, adversity, and how we see him. He came to give us life and life more abundantly, says in John 10, 10. John Maxwell says, the greatest day of your life and mine is when we take total responsibility for our attitudes. That's the day when we truly grow up. Well, listen, with that in mind, I, I, I want to close in prayer. <sighs> but as I do, I just want to remind you, I'm an outsider coming in, uh, Arizona Cardinals. So, you know, Arizona, <laughs> we're like Texas with a low self-esteem. You know, we're, we, have the, <laughs> we have our own issues. <laughs> we do. But, 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 but I know what you deal with because we all deal with this. We all fall into this trap. But God has done a wonderful work for us through giving of his son, and Jesus wants to transform you. And you don't have to have a seminary degree. You don't have to have uh, some great uh, uh, resume. Uh, you don't have, you just have to be a humble person ready to give him your life. And that's what I hope our reminder will help us do more today. Lord, thank you for each one of these people that are listening. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing love, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. Thank you for the hope that you wrap around our lives and wash over us. And I just pray, Father, now as we continue to worship you, that you will, 
that, that all of us will, will look deep down on our sides. Lord, I've been running my life too much. I want you to take your rightful place behind the wheel, driving my life. Thank you. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Amen.